Well, if you're joining us for the first time, you're joining us in week three of this conversation that we've been having, and we've got two more uh, weeks to this as we process this idea. And so we've called it, what if the church looked more like Jesus? And the, the reason we're having this conversation is because we would like to lean into a little bit of the tension that you might feel, that I might feel, that the church might feel, that culture might feel as we walk through what has been the last five, six, seven years and where we're going in the next five, six, seven years and, and what that looks like. And so we started off the conversation a couple weeks ago and I just simply asked this question, what tension do you feel between the church and culture? So if you are someone who's a church person or you would call yourself a, a Jesus follower, um, you might feel that. And you might say this tension that I felt, because I, I mean, I feel this way, this tension that I feel currently is different than what I felt in the past. I shared out when I was a kid, it felt more like right and wrong were at odds with one another. And maybe that was what church stood for, what I was supposed to do and what culture was doing. There was, there was a right and wrong difference that was going on. But now over the last little bit, it's been a little bit different than that. It's been a little bit more of a sliding scale. And so all of a sudden it's not necessarily just right and wrong, but where do I fall on this topic or where do I fall on this movement or where do I fall on this idea or this ideology? And so what do I do with that? And churches and culture are not necessarily on opposite sides, right? Some churches have decided to go more towards one side or the other and said, then you've got to figure that out. So there's just this tension that we've been dealing with. And if we just ignore it, it doesn't get any better, right? No, nothing is better when you just ignore a problem or you just ignore something that's clearly there. And so we wanted to have this conversation. And I shared uh, these statistics. I'll share them briefly again with you from Barna. And then these were uh, another author's take on them. 80% of practicing Christians uh, have a positive view of the church. Only 21% of non-Christians think of the church in a positive way. So 20% of Christians, people that are in church on a regular basis, don't even think of the church in a positive way. And so we're definitely losing the battle with other people. 85% of Christians trust Christian pastors in their community. Less than half of non-Christians feel the same way. And millennials, my generation, are twice as likely as boomers to think their church is detached from the real issues facing their community. And so one of the things we've had the conversation about, and I want to be clear about, is just because we are interacting with culture in a certain way doesn't mean that all of a sudden everybody's going to think like us and believe like us, right? Like, that's not going to happen. That didn't happen with Jesus. I mean, the miracles he did, all the stuff that he did to show who he was, and yet people still looked at Jesus and said, you are too hard to follow, right? I don't want to hand my life over to you. I don't want that to be the reality for me. So it doesn't mean automatically that people are just going to follow us. But when we look at statistics like this and we go, people don't trust us, like that's a problem. Or people look at us and they think that they don't, they don't have a favorable view or they think we are detached from culture and what real issues are. That means that we haven't necessarily interacted with people in ways that are helpful to the community around us. We haven't been that uh, good driving force that at least is there and people trust and know that we are genuine, authentic people that love them. And so that's the tension that we're kind of living in. And so the question that we're asking is simply how can the church impact this trend? And how can we, as GFC, uh, handle our little bit of real estate in New Holland and in eastern Pennsylvania? How do we make sure that we're not on the wrong side of this problem. And so as we've had this conversation, I've just said, if you're a church person, whether you're here in the room, you're listening online, you're listening later, you're watching later, even if you don't go to GFCU, just would identify as a follower of Jesus, how do people see you? How are you contributing to this cultural tension? And then the same question for someone who's not a follower of Jesus, who just found us online somewhere, you're in the room, or you're just connecting, someone sent you the sermon and wanted you to listen to it, 
if the church looked more like Jesus, if we look at these passages and we go, well, that's actually what Jesus was about. If the church looked more like that, would that change your view of what the church is and who Jesus is, maybe? And so today, the idea that we're going to land on and we're going to talk about is being known for what we are for instead of being known for what we are against. That's the conversation we're going to have today. We're going to start in John chapter 15. So if you want, the verses will be up on the screen just like they always are, or you can turn your uh, your own phone, your own Bible, or you can always go to the follow-along page. You can scan that QR code. You can scan the one on the back of your Next Steps card. Uh, that will take you to where you can find all the verses, all the notes, even if you're at home. They're there for you right now. Um, you can ask a question if you'd like or submit a prayer request. We'd love to have you interact in that way. So John 15, we're going to start in verse 1, Okay. So we're going to read verses 1 through 12. So here we go. John 15, starting verse 1. He says this, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me, verses 5 and 6. Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile and burned, 7 and 8. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, You are my true disciples. This brings great joy to my Father. Verses 9 and 10. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Verses 11 and 12. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other the same way I have loved you. And so you may have heard this passage before, interacted with this passage, and Jesus gives us this great example. He's got this vine next to him probably, and he's showing people this is how this works. And this is common knowledge, right? If you if you look at any plant or any tree, right, if it's connected to the actual tree, it will bear fruit. It will continue to live. You chop a branch off and it falls to the ground. It's not connected anymore. You don't expect it to continue to bear fruit. In fact, you expect, you expect it to die. So this isn't necessarily something that's crazy, but Jesus gives us this idea just for us to help understand what's going on. And he says, if you are connected to me, he says, he's the vine and we get to be the branches. And if we're connected to him, if we stay connected to him, then we will bear fruit. And when I was doing a study on this a few years ago, uh, I think I was teaching a youth group at the time, I saw that word that kept coming up over and over and over again. And it was that word, remain. And so I was like, okay, so what does this word actually mean? So I, I dug in a little bit, and the word remain, the word that's actually there, the Greek word, the way you say it is meno. I didn't put it in Greek up there, but meno is the way you say it. And it just means this, to stay, to live, and to dwell. Now, when you see those three words, here's the word that comes into my mind, is home, right? It's where you stay, you live, you dwell. It's the place you come back to. It's the place you spend your most time. It's the place that you are just always going to be. And so when Jesus uses this word over and over and over again, he uses remain a bunch of times in this passage, right? He's saying, make your home where I am. 
Stay connected to that. Don't disconnect from that. If you disconnect from that, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to bear fruit. What does that mean? Your life is not going to look like mine. And so he says, this is the place you are to be. He says, I do this with the Father. He says, I remain in his love and his love remains in me. He continues to make his home with the Father, connected to the Father, and he wants us to do the same thing. And we actually say something similar in our purpose statement as a church. We say this, that we exist to establish every person, family, child, and marriage on the foundation of Jesus. So we use the idea of foundation, but it's the same idea. There's that connectivity. There's that place where we call home. We want every person, child, family, and marriage to bear fruit for Jesus. And we want Jesus to be the foundation, not something else. We want that to be where we find home is in Jesus, in all of these relationships and in our spiritual life. And so here's what's really good, right? If you're committed to this and you would say, yes, I want to bear fruit. I want my life to look like Jesus. Then you're going to say, yes, I want to remain in him. I'm going to continue to build my home in places where I bear fruit. So here's the good thing. Here's the, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've done this well, this is what you do. When you are for Jesus, you make your home in the places where you bear the most fruit. That's what you do. So what does that mean? It means doing things that are going to cause your life to be centered on Jesus, and you're going to bear the fruit that comes from that. So really tangible ways, right? You're going to be connected to a faith community. So whether it's here at GFC or if you're watching from somewhere else, you're going to have a local church that you're connected with. You're probably going to have good biblical relationships with other people. So maybe that looks like being a part of a small group or a mom's group or a group that's connected to your Christian school or something like that. You're going to build those relationships and you're going to continually come back to that space. You're going to build a place where you can make sure that your life bears the most fruit and you're going to be in that space. And that's good and that's positive. But there comes some tension to that. Because when we think about that, here's what happens sometimes. Okay, I'm not saying all the time, I'm just saying sometimes. We want to create this kind of greenhouse effect, right? We all know if you do gardening. I don't do gardening. My wife does the gardening. She did a really good job this year. We have tomatoes coming out our ears. Like, they're just all in our freezer. So I don't do a lot of gardening. I mow the lawn, okay? My wife does the gardening. Now, you know we need certain things to be right, right? We need sun. We need water. We need things for things to grow. So we know that, too. So we create our home in a space where we're going to bear the most fruit in our lives. So we do these things. And sometimes we want that greenhouse effect. We want to be able to protect and make sure we're, we're having a space where we bear the most fruit. But sometimes what can happen is in that desire to build that greenhouse, sometimes we also build walls. And so what can happen is we say we want to protect our fruit bearing, and yet we sometimes will separate ourselves from other people who aren't fruit bearing. Or we create space or we push people away because they're not in the same space as us and we start to protect a little bit. You know, I was thinking about it the other day, my wife and I watch different shows from time to time, right? And I thought the other day, I'd really love to go back and watch one show and I can't find it streaming anywhere and I don't want to pay for it. And that show is Home Improvement. I would love to go back and watch that because it was so funny. It was good at the time. It's, it's nice and I don't have to worry about if my kids walk in, I have to change the channel or anything, right? And so one of the funny things in that show was the neighbor, right? What was the neighbor's name? Wilson. The funny thing, right? You never saw his face. He always had the defense in front of his face. And that was part of the comedy of the moment, right? Because usually if you're going to have a conversation with someone, you don't want the fence in the way. You want to be able to see their face. And yet, for whatever reason, through the whole season, 
I, we don't get his face until the very like last episode or something like that, right? And that was part of the comedy, because we know that's not the way it's supposed to be. And yet, sometimes we do that. And sometimes we do it on purpose. And we build not just a fence, but we build a wall, and we start to protect, and we start to say, you stay out there, I'm going to stay in here. And this is where the culture kind of goes, why are you being so far from us? And at times, it, it, it gets to me a little bit, because at times we, we even like puff ourselves up because we've separated. But here's the thing, right? And this isn't wrong. Some of this comes from really good intentions. Like, it's really good to want to protect and, and bear fruit for Jesus. Like, that's a really good thing to do. But what happens if we build too many walls and we start to separate too much is we can't fulfill the Great Commission. And so if everybody's always on the other side of a wall or other side of the fence or other side of the moat or whatever you put between you and maybe somebody else, we can't be Jesus for them. And so people see that and they start to kind of go, but yeah, but you're supposed to be the kind of Jesus that I see in Scripture and then we aren't that person. That creates a disconnect for us. And what ends up happening is when you start to disconnect from people, right? When there's distance between you and them, you don't have very good personal relationships with them. And as I was studying for this conversation, um, I was listening to, I was reading some and listening to some other pastors preach on it. Um, and I heard one of the other pastors in our fellowship say it this way. He said, too many times we have shouted about what Jesus is against and whispered about what Jesus is for. And, and the way that I would help us understand is if someone, if we build a wall and we separate ourselves from somebody, you have to shout at them. You can't have the same kind of conversation as if you sat down across a table from them. And you can have that conversation. And so we started to point out the things and shout the things and, and be clear about the things that we're angry about. And we yell that very loudly. But then on our side of the fence or our side of the wall or our side of whatever, we whisper about what Jesus feels about them. And you know this. When someone just yells things at you, it doesn't feel very personal. It doesn't feel like we get it, right? You might say, what? And you move closer, right? Can I understand what you're saying? And yet this can be difficult. And so in this tension is, is where we live sometimes. And, and again, I'm not saying this is a blanket statement for everybody. But I'm saying it can be a temptation, and I've seen it at different times through life. And so what do we do with that? Here's what I would say, first of all. This is going to be a funny thing to say, but I didn't find another way, better way to say it. When you are for Jesus, you are for fruit. <laughs> You're for the fruit that comes from being connected to Jesus. And luckily for us, we don't have to guess at what that is. And Paul helped us define this really well, right? So in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it says this, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Now here's the big question, right? When people think about followers of Jesus, are these the first words that come to mind? I don't know. Let me ask this question of you, Christ follower, or church person, you're Jesus follower. Are these the first words you think of when you think of other followers of Jesus? Maybe some. There might be some. You go, yeah, that person's really good at that. But that person does feel very loving. Or that person this or that, right? But I did have a conversation with one, buddy, one, some, one person, one buddy, one, uh, somebody a few years ago. And he was a business person, and he did business with different people. Uh, he said some people he knew were followers of Jesus. Some people he knew weren't, and he would just interact with them in different ways. He said, you know, I will always choose to do business with the person who's not the follower of Jesus rather than the follower of Jesus. He said, for whatever reason, in his experience, and he was a follower of Jesus, by the way, he said, in his experience, he said the people that weren't followers of Jesus were, had better business ethics. They were easier to get along with. They wanted to work together. 
he said sometimes the followers of Jesus were a little bit more entitled. They had a little bit more judgment to them. And he said it was so much easier to work with people that weren't. And he was a follower of Jesus. He's like, I, I would want to normally. But in his experience, it just didn't work. And if our immediate thought, when we saw these words, and I asked, is this what you think of when you think of a follower of Jesus or other followers of Jesus? If our, our answer is not yes, then that means we're not quite bearing this fruit. And this is where culture goes, this is who you're supposed to be. But I don't feel the love, I don't feel the joy, I don't feel the peace or patience. When you think back to the statistics I shared with you a little bit earlier about whether they trust us or not, well, you would think you'd trust this person, right? In fact, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, imagine this. Imagine you went to school for back-to-school conferences, okay? And you sat down with your kid's teacher, and the teacher sat down across from you, and they said, these are the words that describe your child. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, and you've ever read this verse or not, you would look at this and go, that's a win, right? If this is my kid, these are the words that describe my kid, we're doing great. Like, that's a great progress report. We are in good shape. And so Paul says, right, there's no law against these things. These are the things that we would just say in general would be a quality person. And these are the things that people are supposed to see when they look at followers of Jesus. But here's the thing, right? If culture sees us as angry, dismissive, frustrating, and judgmental, we've missed it. If that's the picture that they get of us, then we're not being the fruit bearers that we're supposed to be. I had an experience uh, when I was a kid, uh, growing up in the church I grew up in. I grew up in a Baptist church. And so we had, instead, we have elders here at BFC. We had at my baptism, we had deacons, and then we had trustees, okay? So the deacons were like the decision makers, and they were the board, and then the trustees kind of took care of the building. And so they would mow the lawn, they would do all the work, they would make sure when the, you know, the gas is leaking, they call somebody to come look at it, you know, they do all that kind of stuff, right? And so there was a system in my church growing up, and about the time I was like 12 or 13, I found out that they were going to ask me to be a part of this thing they called junior trustees. And so I guess every year or two years or so, they, reached, they decided they would find some teenagers, like late middle school, early high school, somewhere in there. And they would bring them into the meetings, and we would get to learn what that meant. It was kind of like, I think it was supposed to be kind of like a leadership training thing. And so one day my parents, you know, told me, they, they heard, someone came and talked to them, that they were going to ask me to come and be a junior trustee. Well, I didn't, I was 12 or 13, I didn't know what that was. So I started asking questions. And they said, I asked, who is it that's in charge of this? Like, if I'm doing this, who am I going to be with? Who am I hanging out with? And they told me the person that was in charge of it. And I promise you, I am not being mean. I'm not being mean. This is just honestly what I remember. My first thought was, I have never seen that person smile in my life. And I'm not being mean. That was just honest. And to this day, to this day, I haven't seen that person in years. But to this day, my recollection of that person was they had, I never saw them smile or laugh, ever. And so as a 12 or 13-year-old, I went, this person does not sound like fun to be around, and I said to my parents, I don't want to do it. And they were like, all right, well, we'll leave it up to you. You can, you can decide what you want to do. And so that person came, and they asked me if I wanted to do it and, and everything, and I said, you know, I don't think I'm really interested. And you know what, they just kind of went, okay, and walked away. And that was the conversation. And so for me, as a 12 or 13-year-old, right, I looked at someone that was in ministry 
older than me, inviting me maybe to be a part of something, and my evaluation of that situation as a 12 or 13-year-old, not saying I was the wisest person at the time at all, but my evaluation was, why would I want to do this if that person doesn't seem like they want to do it? Why would I get engaged in that kind of relationship, or why would, I, why would I step into this role if it doesn't even seem like that person wants me? Because even when I said no, it wasn't, well, why not? Or what can I do to help, help you understand? Or can I take you out to coffee? Or can we have a conversation about it? Just, okay, walk away. And maybe he was tipped off ahead of time. Maybe my parents told him I was going to say no or something like that. I don't know. I haven't revisited that. But I think this happens with followers of Jesus. And people look at us and go, why would I, why would I want to be a part of it? You don't seem happy. <laughs> you don't seem like it's good for you. Or you're angry. Or you yell things. Or you, you know what I mean? Like you post things. You do this, right? Why would they want to be a part of it? And if that's the case, they're not seeing the fruit in our lives that Paul talks about. So I want to go to two places today where Jesus actually talks about what he's for. And the first one is Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 16. And this is what it says. It says, when, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verses 18 and 19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, and the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now let's, let's pause for a minute. This is pretty early in Jesus' ministry. Like, people kind of knew who he was, because it tells us he went to the Sabbath regularly, so it wasn't like they didn't know him. But he hadn't done a lot of miracles yet. He hadn't amassed his following yet. It was still kind of early in the game. And they give him the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens it, and he reads this. Now, for us, as follow, if you're a follower of Jesus or someone that studies Scripture thousands of years later, we go, well, of course this is talking about Jesus. Like, we know that. But think about the people in the room. Like, they didn't know that it was Jesus. I mean, they knew who Jesus was, but they didn't realize all that he was going to do. So he stands up, and he reads this. And then we go on in verses 20 and 21. It says this, And he rolled up the scroll, and he handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down. It's kind of the equivalent of, like, a mic drop, right? I'm just going to read this. I'm going to sit down. Because all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture, scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. So he makes a claim. He goes, he's making a statement of, why am I here? If we go back just for a second to that word, right? What does he say? He says, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free. So here's what we have to know, right? If we're for Jesus, or when you're for Jesus, you're for the oppressed and the poor. And this is difficult, right? Usually, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but usually this is, this is more of the difficult avenues of love that we've talked about sometimes in 1 Corinthians 13. Not always sure what to do. Like maybe you've walked down the street in a city You've seen someone that's homeless. You're like, what do, I, what do I do? Like, I wish I could just fix it, maybe, but I don't exactly know how to fix it, and I, and I don't know what to, I don't know if handing them money is a good idea, and I don't know, right? There's just like, there's that tension of what do I do? 
And some of the difficulty of how we love people comes out in these types of conversations. But Jesus says, this is who he's here for. That those that are difficult sometimes to know what to do with and how to love, he says, I'm going to give them good deeds. I'm going to let them know they're set free. I'm going to step in and be a person that they look at and go, that person is for me. And sometimes that's difficult to do, to allow people to understand that we are for them. Here's the tension that I hear sometimes, too, is sometimes church people look at those people and they start to ask questions like, yeah, but what bad decisions did they make to get themselves there? Yeah, but what substance are they addicted to? Yeah, but what about this problem? Or what about this thing? And they start to ask those questions because they want to ask the question, why should I clean up their mess? If I go that far, I would go, well, Jesus cleaned up our mess. So why wouldn't we help clean up his? And so when we get opportunities to be Jesus to people that are sometimes more challenging to love and to know what to do with, that's what we're called to do. Now, granted, we can't always do it, right? But that's why we partner with CrossNet. We partner with the factory. We try and be Jesus in those moments where we can reach these people. But there's not an ease to this. Jesus says, I came to reach the people that are sometimes difficult to reach. I want to go to Matthew 19. Read one more passage today. Matthew 19 and verse 13. We'll read verses 13 to 15. It says, One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. Now, you, again, time out, right? You're like, why are the disciples such jerks? Like, people bringing their kids to Jesus, and the disciples start to yell at them. By the way, some of the disciples were like 17 themselves, so like, you're yelling at people for bringing other children to Jesus, and you get to hang out with them all the time. So they just get mad at them. Why, why was that? Well, in this culture, just the way the culture was, usually women and children were kind of more seen and not heard. And so when, when people start bringing babies and children to Jesus, the disciples are kind of thinking, um, stop wasting his time. We have people to heal. We have people to teach. We have people to do this with, right? Like, let's not waste the time on the children. And even, you know, today we get that, right? You're in a setting where someone's supposed to be teaching or preaching, and like some kid starts screaming. It just creates that tension. Like, they didn't want that. So they go, let's get the kids out of here. How does Jesus respond? In verses 14 and 15, it says, but Jesus said, let the children come to me, don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. Yet, yet again, this is another moment where Jesus says, the people that you see as less, I'm going to elevate. And I'm going to be for them. And I'm going to want us to engage with them. And I want you to engage with them. I think this is why patience is a fruit of the Spirit, because we're supposed to welcome the children, right? So we start to see that fruit, and we start to see what that means. And when we're for Jesus, it means that we're for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these. What's he saying? Those who have this childlike faith, they just look at you and they just believe it. It's kind of fun when you have kids to tell them silly things and see if they'll, if they'll believe you, right? I do that to my kids sometimes, and I tell them I'm just joking. But, like, it's kind of fun to play that game sometimes. Well, they're so ready, right? They're so ready, ready to trust and be willing to help. And sometimes even in those difficult situations, children are the first ones to be like, can we help that person? 
right? They need help. Can we go? And, and sometimes as adults, we're like, well, we have to wait and see. We have to figure out what's best. And we have to do. And children, kids are like, I'll, I'll share. I'll do it, right? Yesterday, we were at the park. Um, there was like a family fun day at the park up the street from us. And Owen saw one of his class friends that were there with him. Um, and so he went and played cornhole with him for a while and hung out. And that friend told Owen that he, we got there too late. He had missed the candy scramble. So Owen missed the candy scramble. He wasn't even upset about it. But before we left, that friend, I forget his name. I'll have to ask Owen again. He ran over to Owen, just gave him some of his candy. And Owen said, I didn't even ask him to give me, give me any candy. But he gave me some. And he, he saw in that moment, right, that person was for him. He didn't ask. He didn't need it. He, he didn't even know about it until he got there, right? And that friend still said, I'm going to give to you out of what I have. That's a, that's a fruit of the Spirit. I don't know if that kid knows Jesus or not, but his willingness in that moment was just to love Owen that way. And Owen was so excited about it. So we're for the kingdom. When that, if that person then came, if that friend came to Owen and said, would you come to my birthday party? Owen would go in a second one. Why? Because that kid gave him some of his candy. So we can elevate that to an adult level and understand what that means. But because that kid felt loved, or he loved Owen, and Owen felt loved, their relationship grew. Listen, as we, as we deal with this tension, I know today is one of those days where I'm not going to necessarily be able to hand you something that's tangible, and we go, this is exactly how we do this, right? Everybody's life is different, and how we love people looks different. The situation you find yourself in is different than the situation I will find myself in. But ultimately, I think the question boils down to this. What is the faith of the next generation worth to us? And I mean that as a kid, like to kids. I mean that to kids. Like we, what they look at and what they see in us, what is that going to mean to them? Are they going to look at it and say, this is something I want to be a part of. I see the fruit of it. I see what it means to you. I see that what it does in your life, and I want to be a part of it. This can also mean the next generation of just the next generation of followers of Jesus. It doesn't necessarily need to mean that we're just talking about children. It can mean the person who sits next to you at work or the person that's in your class or the person that you live next to, right? If they're not a follower of Jesus yet, they're the next generation of Christ follower. And so when they look at us, what do they see? Do they see these fruits of the Spirit that we clearly have because we remain in Jesus and because we've decidedly made our home where we're going to bear fruit but not separate ourselves and still be able to reach people who don't know him? Or do they see us as frustrating and judgmental? And do they evaluate us like I evaluated that person in my church who I just look at and said, why would I want to do that? Is that the way they see us? As I thought about this, I, I, I just thought about it this way. We should be staunchly against the idea of people going to hell, not staunchly against the people we fear are headed that direction. Now, what do I mean by that? I believe, honestly, hell is a real place, and if you don't know Jesus, that's where you're headed. So I believe. So if that's the case, and that's what I believe, and I believe that there are people who are headed that direction, my goal should not be to build a wall between me and that person. My goal should be to love that person off of that path and to show them what it means to be a Christ follower because I was once on that path. And the louder I shout or the more I separate, the more I just say, keep going, instead of saying, no, I, I want this to look differently. I had, a, I had a moment like this this morning before the fire trucks, okay? 
So before the fire trucks, this is what happened. There was a there was a festival that happened in the park the other day. And they actually emailed and said, can we use your church parking lot? And I thought, that's great. Usually people don't ask to use our church parking lot. They just park here. That's fine. I don't, I don't mind. But this, this group, I was like, wow, that's actually really nice. Like they actually emailed and asked. And I came in today, I drove in, and there was some trash in the parking lot. And including one of those things was a used diaper that was just kind of like, it looked like someone changed their kid and just like put it down and just like drove away, right? In my head for a minute, I'll just be honest, right? I went, I'm going to write them an email and say, next year I'm going to think twice. That's what I thought at first. And then I thought, not a good idea. Why? Because then I immediately come off as the follower of Jesus who just got angry and frustrated instead of taking five minutes to go clean up the diaper that's outside. And so instead of doing that, I was tempted, I'm being honest, right? I was tempted to do that. I didn't. And I just went and I cleaned up and it's over, right? And that person now has no idea. And I don't come off as someone who's just the pastor who's angry or frustrated. I can just say, yep, come next year. I don't care if we have to clean up a few pieces of trash, right? Come use our space. These moments are just going to pop up. And I'll be honest, the way that I would process that or the way I've seen other people process that was the email. But the way I thought about it, and maybe some of it was studying this topic, was to say, no, just suck it up and deal with it. And don't don't come off that way to other people. And so here's where I want to land today. If, if the church looked more like Jesus, we would magnify and clarify what Jesus is for and not what he's against. Because if people only know what he's against, they hear that he's against them if they're not a follower of Jesus. That's what they hear. But when we talk about what he's for, and we show what he's for, and we have that fruit of the Spirit in us, then they feel what Owen felt when his friend gave him candy. And they say, oh, that person cares about me. That person is for me. That person isn't just about showing me how I'm wrong. That person wants to build a bridge with me and have conversations that matter. And so don't, I want us to be a space where people look at us as a church and go, we might believe differently. Like we're going to, you know, me saying there's a real, real place called hell where people are headed. Like people are going to disagree about that and that's okay. But I don't want them to see us as judgmental, frustrating, angry, that are just shouting what's wrong and we build this. this kind of, I want them to see us as people that love them and as people that want to love them to a space where they know Jesus the way we know Jesus that we would contribute a little bit, like I said before, in our little piece of New Holland and say, we're not going to build the divide. We're going to build a bridge. We're not going to build the tension of, we're just going to say what's wrong all the time. But we're going to shout about what Jesus is for and not just what he's against. Again, I said, this isn't, this isn't easy to just hand a tangible, what do I do with this? But in those moments this week, think about it. Think about, as I'm interacting with people, even people that are followers of Jesus, are they seeing the fruit of my life? Or are they seeing the frustration and the anger? Because ultimately, people, if we are connected to Jesus, we're remaining in him, that's the place we're making our home so that we bear fruit. That's what they're going to see. And that's what's going to bring them into a relationship with Jesus as well. Let's pray.
God, this isn't an easy thing to do, but it wasn't easy for Jesus to do it either. It wasn't easy for him to come and say that he was just going to be a missionary to poor and, and to the poor and to the um, to the people who were not always easy to love, and yet he did, and we fall into that category too. And so we ask that we would understand in those difficult moments where we want to respond with frustration and anger, and we want to look at people who don't believe the same thing as us, and we would rather just be upset that we would remember the fruit that we are showing in the way we interact with others. I pray that you would be the vine that we're connected to, that we would continue to bear fruit because we are connected to you and because we love you and we make our home where you are. I ask that we would magnify and clarify the ways that you are for people and not just against people. God, let us be a church where the fruit of the Spirit is seen very clearly to the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.